Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, I'm Richard Scott and welcome to the Podcast Hour, the show that helps discover what to listen to next. Each week I handpick some of the best audio storytelling from New Zealand and around the world. And on today's menu, Inside an Isolation Dome in Hawaii, training for a mission to Mars, Insider's stories of the making of the classic film Jaws, and Song Exploder takes a part on Top of the World by Kimbra and tells the story of how it was made, which sounds a bit like this. Browro! <laughs> Quick. There's a turf I didn't do it. Any one of mine. The shirt is not working. That is the sound of an escaped poop nugget, freed from the bounds of gravity, floating through the Apollo spaceship. He was the first person to put a drop on the song, like add the 808. There's going to be a whole sports leagues invented, sports in general invented on Mars. And a snare which totally changed the feeling, because now all of a sudden you could, like, really bump to the song and the groove. It was heavy, you know? That's all coming up, and you can get in touch by email at pods at radionz.co.nz, on Twitter, we're at RNZ Podcast Hour, or you can record and send in voice messages using RNZ's Vox Pop app. People have been dreaming and scheming about the day that we humans will be able to travel to Mars and maybe even live there for over a century. And it's getting closer to becoming a reality, with predictions a few brave souls will be making the return trip sometime in the 2030s. But what if the technological challenge of getting to Mars and back isn't the biggest obstacle we have to overcome? Could our human relationships, our ability to manage stress and conflict and solve problems together after being cooped up for months on end, could that be another major hurdle too? To test this out, NASA's been sending teams of volunteers to live for long periods in an isolation dome on a Hawaiian volcano. The project is called High Seas, and it's been running for about the past five years. The Habitat, produced by Gimlet Media and presented by Lynn Levy, is the story of one of these groups who started a year-long stint in the Dome back in 2015. The team of six had audio recorders to capture their experiences, and they're about to enter their new home for the very first time. So we are outside the habitat. Happy Valentine's Day, Happy St. Patrick's Day, Fourth of July. And there is a lot of noise, lots of people. Bye guys. We wave goodbye. And then we enter. And then, well, then it's silent. 
and we look around and we look at each other and we know that you know for a year it will be just just the six of us and always here always in this place this place is the habitat One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen, fourteen, fifteen. And this is Cyprian 16, walking 17, across the habitat, 18, counting 19, his steps as he goes. 20, 21, 22, 23, 24, 25, uh, 5, 26, 27, 28, 29, 30, 31, 32, 33. 33 steps. That's how far you can walk inside the habitat. From one end to the other, the whole thing is just 33 steps. It's smaller than a tennis court. It's smaller than some kindergarten classrooms. But for the High Seas crew, this is the whole damn world. After I said goodbye to the crew, I went back to New York and waited. And after a little while, they started sending me recordings from inside. I send them a question, and they send me a recording. And one of the first things I wanted to know was just, what is it like in there? Um, today, we'll just give you a tour of the hub. So, the habitat is round. Most of it is just one round room. And in the center of the room is a staircase. And it leads to a mezzanine. Um, I will speak... Um, I'll be quiet now because there are people sleeping. On this mezzanine, you have seven doors. One is a bathroom door. Um, and the six of the doors are our individual compartments. These individual compartments are like dignified closets. These things are really freaking tiny. That's Tristan, another member of the crew. So if I'm at the door where I come in, my whole room is, let's see, let's see if we go here, it's like one. Two, three. Oh. And yeah, after three steps in, you hit your head on the dome. So it's, it's quite, a, quite small, but it's very, it's very cozy. Each room comes furnished with this toddler-sized furniture, a teeny-weeny desk, an itty-bitty bed. It's hard to imagine an adult human sleeping in here. But there's just not much room on a rocket ship. So everything that goes to Mars will have to be small. It's going to be as uh, tight as you can get it and still make things work. Anyway, I'm getting naked. Close your eyes. Every little thing about life in the habitat is designed to mimic something about life on Mars. So, out there, water is going to be scarce. It's going to be precious. And in here, it's got to be scarce and precious, too. Okay, where will I put the microphone? To get an idea of just how scarce, I asked Cyprian to record himself taking a shower. Um, I hope you realize that your questions are very weird, but, well, <clears throat> it's not up to me to judge. Okay, so I am, um, well, in the, in the shower. There are buckets on the ground so that we can collect water, because then we use it to mop the ground. And there is a timer so that we can make sure that we don't use too much water. That beep is the timer. Cyprian gets about 30 seconds to wash himself. 
while he does that... Oh my, Lean, that's cold. I will use the 30 seconds to tell you as much as I can about water and space. So, on the International Space Station, they reuse every drop of water they can because water is so precious. So all the water in their breath, the vapor, all the sweat, their tears, everything, it all gets recycled, cleaned, reused, returned to them. They even recycle the mouse pee from the lab mice on the ship and turn it into... Oh, and there's the timer. That's all Cyprian gets. Like 30 ice-cold seconds. <laughs> My body's a blue and red right now. Um, so I'm freezing to death and I will go back to my room under the blanket where it's warm. Anyway, I was saying, out there, every drop of water is precious. Because if you run out, you can't just get more. And the situation on Mars won't be much better. Yes, there is some water on Mars in the form of ice, but there are no lakes or rivers. It never really rains or snows. Everything you take for granted on Earth, forget it. And some of what the crew is doing in the dome is figuring out ways to deal with that. Christiana, who's a physicist, is looking for ways to extract water from the ground. Carmel, who loves being in nature, is trying to grow plants under these weird Mars-like conditions. And Cyprian, the biologist, is experimenting with these little green specks, this bacteria that he thinks could help people grow their own food on Mars. But for now, the only way to survive a mission to Mars is to bring all your food with you. Turn on the lights. On the first floor of the HAB, there's a storage room packed floor to ceiling. With giant bins of um, just all the food. There's enough food here to last a long, long time. It's all stuff that would survive a trip to Mars. Everything is powdered or vacuum-packed or dried. Ground beef. Dried. Turkey. Dried. Cheddar. Dried. This one doesn't have a label, but it's full of dehydrated applesauce. I had no idea you could dehydrate so much weird shit. Natural burgundy wine powder. Almost all the food in the habitat is food that's had the water sucked out of it. So if you want a nice ripe peach in here, you can have one. But it'll be dehydrated. And not the mouthfeel you usually think of when you think peach. (coughs) Peach dust. Sitting in my apartment listening to these early recordings, I start to get very, very curious about what this food actually tastes like. And then one day, my producer, Peter, tells me it's possible to mail order the same kind of food that the crew is eating inside the habitat. Which is how we become the proud owners of a jumbo-sized can of dehydrated turkey chunks. Sounds like Lucky Charms, kind of. Like a little softer, but basically Lucky Charms. Inside the can are many, many half-inch cubes, the color and texture of chalk. The idea is to rehydrate them and bake them like a real turkey. So we add water. It's honestly, it's like doing the Rice Krispies noise. You hear it? Oh my God. (laughs) We let the cubes sit in the water until the whole thing becomes kind of like a turkey slush. When like the mama bird throws up her food for the baby birds, that's what it looks like. Oh, God, it really does. I try my very best to shape it into a turkey-like shape. I guess. Is that sort of, is that how drumsticks go? Yeah. And then we bake. 
And 40 minutes later, we have something. Hmm. It's like wood pulp. I mean, that's, it's like, what is that called? Press board? It's like dorm room furniture. It's dorm room furniture. Like vaguely Turkish dorm room furniture. After three bites of this stuff, I can't swallow another bite. The idea of eating food like this every day for a year is pretty much the grossest thing I can imagine. Until Mission Day 59, when I get a recording describing something even grosser. Maybe hear it echoey a little bit. This is the downstairs bathroom. This is Tristan again. He's standing next to one of the high seas toilets. Now, obviously, there is no indoor plumbing on Mars. And the habitat is designed to simulate that. The smell is not great. Uh, We've got our composting toilet right there. So instead of flushing everything away like you guys all do back home, it just uh, sits in there. The composting toilet is basically a big barrel. You do your business in the barrel, and your shit drops into a little drawer. It's like a sock drawer, but for poop. And in the drawer, the poop gets dried out, sanitized, and turned into these neat little chunks that can be used as fertilizer. When it works right. But one day, one of the toilets stopped working right. Tristan and Shay were on cleanup duty. So they put on every piece of protective gear they could find. So uh, Shay and I had our cotton scrubby things on and goggles, and I had my Respro face mask, gloves, the whole bit. Even booties for our shoes, actually. Felt very much like a nurse. And marched into the bathroom. They opened the drawer under the toilet, which was supposed to contain those neat little chunks. It was just, uh, oh, like if you can imagine a 10-pound tray of the worst fudge you've ever seen in your life, that's basically what we were dealing with. In this moment, Tristan and Shay entered a grand tradition of toilet troubles in astronaut history. You know, once you get out of lunar orbit, you can do a lot of things. You can power down, you can, you can, you can do a lot of things. You're listening to The Fine Men of Apollo 10. This was recorded in 1969. Their ship had just finished orbiting the moon, and they were headed triumphantly back to Earth. Oh, who did it? Who did what? what? Who did it? Give me, give me Where did that come from? Give me a napkin quick. There's a turtle. I didn't do it. Any more of mine. Give me a napkin quick. There's a turd floating around. That is the sound of an escaped poop nugget, freed from the bounds of gravity, floating through the Apollo spaceship. I, I don't think it's one of mine. Uh, mine was a little more sticky than that. The Apollo program was a triumph in many, many ways, but pooping was not one of them. Any astronaut who needed to poop had to float over to one side of the ship, ask the other astronaut dudes to look away, strip completely naked, hold a little plastic bag up to his butthole, deposit his poop in the bag, seal the bag up, and get dressed again. The whole thing could take over an hour. And obviously, it did not always work that well. Here's another goddamn turd. What's the matter with you guys? Here, give me a... (laughs) God almighty. Turns out, the whole space program has been a parade of poop and pee-related mishaps. Alan Shepard, the very first American shot into space, 
pissed his pants on the launch pad before he could even lift off. NASA hadn't bothered to give him any kind of bathroom option. They figured he could just hold it. But the launch took longer than expected, and Shepard, a fallible human man with a fallible human bladder, couldn't. But that's a drop in the bucket compared to what astronaut Gordon Cooper experienced in 1963. Cooper was on a solo flight. He was supposed to spend a day and a half in orbit, perform a few experiments, and then come home. Mission Control was flying the ship. But near the end of the flight, the ship suddenly malfunctioned. The altitude indicators failed. The stabilizers failed. And most alarmingly, the autopilot failed leaving Cooper to find his way home like some kind of ancient mariner, using his knowledge of the constellations to navigate. Turns out, his urine bag leaked. Little drops of pee got into the ship's controls and short-circuited everything. Back in the habitat, Tristan and Shay did not have to land an out-of-control spaceship, but they did have to get the downstairs toilet working again. So... They grabbed a couple of plastic shovels, jammed their arms blindly into the space under the toilet. Shoulder deep into this thing. And started digging. And essentially just put as much of it as we could into old coffee cans. And there was a solid nine or ten coffee cans worth to give you a idea of the horror. Um, eventually got it clean and put everybody on a bathroom schedule. So boys downstairs, girls upstairs. And hopefully we won't overload the system again. The producer and host of The Habitat, Lynn Levy, told me via Skype why this mission to recreate Mars on Earth really grabbed her interest. High Seas is this very unusual experiment in that they created this whole self-contained world. And you just don't run across that very often in life. And I think that to me felt like something that just had the makings of a fascinating story that it was, first of all, that it, it's a year-long experiment. It has a beginning and a middle and an end, just like any good story. And it has this, this fascinating setting and that all the things that are going to happen are going to happen in this one place. And I just felt a very strong desire to be in that place. And since I couldn't personally be in that place, the next best thing would be to be able to hear that place. Sometimes I would I would get a very short recording and I think, oh God, I wish... I wish I could have been there to ask follow-up questions. I wish they would have said more, but, you know, there was no way to do that because they were in seclusion. They were supposed to be on Mars, and, and I couldn't talk to them. And they couldn't have phone calls, and I certainly couldn't have visitors. And so I would get little tiny recordings of audio, and I just think, gosh, if I just been there, I could have asked a follow-up question, but you can't really. And then other times I would get massive massive recordings, which was really great in the sense that I had a lot to work with, but also meant that I would sometimes sit there and listen to literally two straight hours of chewing. So it, it certainly made me feel like I was there, which was great, but it, it was a lot of chewing. <laughs> <laughs> How did the setup work? So you, they had a recorder, one recorder between the six of them uh, inside this this habitat. And how did the recording work? Was it running 24-7? Was somebody in charge of it? Did they take it in turns? No, 24-7 would have been amazing, although it would have been even more chewing. Um, no, it was basically, they, they. I ultimately ended up giving them two recorders and they shared it and people would make a recording when they wanted to make a recording and then pass the recorders along. You know, I basically would ask them a question once a week and uh, sometimes everybody would respond. Sometimes just a few people would respond. Sometimes they would also record something else that they thought was interesting that week, and then they would send the recordings to me. 
I can remember there was this reality TV show called Big Brother when I was in England, and there's been similar spin-offs all over the world now, where there was like a closet that people would go into and record these kind of <laughs> confessional things about the other people. I got that kind of feeling at times, that people were using the microphone as a bit of a confessional device. It's interesting. Yeah, I think I certainly didn't set out to do that. But I think any time that you are sort of in a high stress situation and you have an opportunity to talk, it can become a little bit of a of a confession or a therapy experience. Also, I found that when people recorded together, that was really great because then they would just sort of start to banter and it was really a nice opportunity for them to say what they were feeling and the recorder wasn't so important. Okay, this was Christiana um, shaking her milk. Shaking? Well, stirring? Well, stirring, yeah, whatever. <laughs> and this was Cyprian trying to speak English. Oh, and this is Tristan speaking French. <laughs> <laughs> Come on. <laughs> Say something. Something. <laughs> It must be difficult too, because you must have your favorites almost. You must have people that you hear and they're particularly, you know, lighthearted, having lots of fun. And you must tend to kind of perhaps like them a little bit more than other characters. I think I had warm feelings towards everybody in this just in a different way. I think when you spend a year listening to people, you can't help but feel connected to them. And I think, you know, everybody had, mo there were moments with everybody where I was sort of like, oh, that was like so beautiful. And I feel so privileged that they told me that. I think like with Cyprian is one of the characters and he's somebody who can be a little bit reserved sometimes. But then one day he said, all right, I'm going to I'll play the the ukulele and sing for you and I'm going to record it. Ah. <laughs> About eight weeks into the experiment, mission day 58, Cyprian starts sending me recordings of himself playing the ukulele. That's an E. Anyway. And that just felt so amazing. I was like, oh, he's letting me into his world. It's pr it was pretty great. Of course, also, there are times when people crack the same joke over and over, and I felt just like the slightest glimmer of what the kind of irritation that they were probably feeling with each other. Yeah, you definitely get that sense. That there are certain repeating themes through it. I was wondering about you and the way maybe it's changed your way of being confined with other people as well. Has it given you any insights? Has it made you a better kind of plane passenger, for example? I think it's given me admiration for people who can survive these confined environments. I think I really, I, I just don't have any experiences that line up with this at all. I mean, I do get irritated on planes. I do get irritated on six hour plane rides at people who are just like loudly eating pistachios. And that's nothing. I mean, that is just nothing compared to this. So I think, yeah, I think my level of, of admiration for people who do these confined experiences, not just in this experiment, but people in it who, you know, who go to the Arctic, people on the International Space Station, anybody, oh, people on submarines, God, that one is the worst. I think it's, you know, it's, it's just made me really understand how tough this can be to take. Lynn Levy, the host and producer of The Habitat, and thanks to Kevin Turner, Hayley Shaw and Victoria Barner at Gimlet Media for letting me play that to you. And you can find The Habitat wherever you get your podcasts, or there are more details on how to listen at our website. That's radionz.co.nz forward slash podcast hour. <laughs> 
Some people are already thinking about the realities of getting to Mars and what living and working there would actually be like. From the show Crazy Genius, hosted by Derek Thompson of The Atlantic, should we go to Mars? Eventually, there's going to be a vast city on Mars and eventually maybe a whole planet like the Earth with oceans and lakes and all that. Uh, And it'll be really easy to live there. This is Tim Urban. He's a science writer at the website Wait But Why. He spent a lot of time imagining our future on Mars. On Mars, the gravity is less. It's a third of the Earth's gravity. That's not so bad. And it's actually kind of fun. You can, like, jump out of your second-story window to go to work. You can, like, jump out of it <laughs> like you jump off a five-foot ledge. It's really everything just multiplied by three. So if you can jump off a six-foot ledge right now, no problem. You can jump off an 18-foot ledge on Mars. Pretty fun. Um, basketball there is right, so fun. I was, just, I was just thinking, yeah, LeBron James can dunk on a, what, 30-foot There's going to be a league. There's going to be a whole sports league invented. Sports in general invented on Mars. But it won't be all fun and gravity-defying games. There's going to be these industries. Of course, you'll have an office. You know, the companies will have an office on Mars. You know, kids will go to Mars for college. People on Mars will want to communicate with people on Earth. Phone calls will be tough. At the nearest point in their orbits, Earth and Mars are still three light minutes away. Nothing can go faster than light. So what it means is you'll never be able to Skype or text in real time. Then Mars is going to get farther and farther away, uh, and eventually it's 22 light minutes away. It's going to be really annoying to communicate. And for two weeks, every 26 months, the sun is directly in between Earth and Mars, and actually they won't be able to communicate at all. It'll be wow. it'll go dark. We'll have the holiday. We'll call it something. And then once the day ends, it'll be this big celebration. People will all be talking, hey, we're back, whatever. But here's the first of many challenges. Getting to Mars would mean making regular trips to a planet in a totally different orbit than ours. Every 26 months, Earth laps Mars. It's when they're closest together, so picture two racers and one laps the other. It's right when they're next to each other. Yes. So when Mars and Earth are closest, you can send ships to and from Earth and Mars. That's the only time you're going to do it. 2018 is the last time no one knows whether Mars is close or not when it's close. It's not a topic of conversation. Seven years from now, this is all anyone's going to be talking about. Here's more of that Should We Go to Mars episode with Derek Thompson and Tim Urban again. Getting to Mars is one thing. Then there's actually living on Mars. These first trips are not fun. They're not recreation. These are people who want to go and suffer. And you do it because you want to be part of the first few trips. You're a pioneer. You're an explorer. You know, you want to be part of that. There's too much cosmic radiation on Mars to just land and start walking around the surface. It's got to have a hospital, some kind of school. They're going to have to basically build a whole set of agriculture underground. Then they need to build a fuel depot because people need to come back and they can't bring their fuel. So what is fuel? You need oxygen and you need methane, which is, I think, CH4. So you need O, C, and H. So they can use water and carbon dioxide to make methane and liquid oxygen to fly back. Then you can start slowly but surely building places outside of there, a little city, maybe a dome, you know, that people can live under that's radiation protected and heated. So eventually we don't just want to go to Mars to live underground. We want to go to Mars to turn Mars into something like a second Earth, right? Uh, How do we do that? So this is called terraforming. Terraforming Mars. What that means is actually trying to make Mars as livable for humans as the Earth currently is. One thing we've gotten good at on the planet is is climate change, unfortunately. We're going to have to, we're going to use that now. We actually have a use for it. We're going to global warm the 
out of Mars. Methane's very dangerous in the Earth's atmosphere, but it's great on Mars. So they're going to pump out stuff like methane. They can do things like explode nuclear bombs on the poles. <laughs> this is a real plan, uh, which melts a lot of the ice. When the ice melts, CO2 is released into the atmosphere, first of all. It warms a lot of the planet. There's a lot more warmth. And the water itself starts kind of a feedback cycle. You end up with lakes. So between those these few things, you end up with an atmosphere that can trap heat. So it gets much warmer and we get more protection from radiation. So every terrible thing that we're doing to Earth. It's going to go great on Mars. We want to do to Mars. Yes. It's like we, we, we're all the things that we do that are bad. It's like, good. We're, we're so good at this. Actually, this is something we're good at. <laughs> we have been practicing for <laughs> so long. Unbelievable at just, this. Just yeah. centuries of practice to screw up a planet. And after all this, we still have to pump in oxygen. The oxygen part's going to take at least a couple hundred years. First, you'll have to wear a mask. Eventually, you can start taking off the mask, but it's like being at the top of Everest. It's really, really thin. You people pass out. Then it gets a little bit better. Now it's like being, uh, you know, in, in, in Cusco and then eventually like Denver. And eventually, you're just living there and it's a completely normal atmosphere. It sounds like science fiction, but Urban says, actually, it's just science. I would say there's a 90-plus percent chance that there's someone there by 2030. There's probably a 50 percent chance someone's on Mars by 2025. And in which case, there's a good chance that the Neil Armstrong of Mars is back on Earth by 2030. He's the biggest celebrity in the world. And yeah, we better check up on that prediction in about 12 years. That's Crazy Genius, hosted by Derek Thompson of The Atlantic. Just when you thought it was safe to go back in the water, Inside Jaws comes along. The series intercuts between dramatisations of famous shark attacks, scenes from Steven Spielberg's directing career and stories from the filming of Jaws itself. Shooting the film was a catalogue of disasters with persistent problems affecting Bruce, the collective name for the mechanical sharks they used on the film. And Inside Jaws is entertaining stuff. Some of the shark attacks, especially the one in the first episode, when you aren't really that familiar with the format, do a great job of ramping up the tension, a little bit like the film itself. Here's a taster from episode five of Inside Jaws, just to see if you like the sound of it. April 1974. Ron and Valerie Taylor knew great white sharks up close. Zanuck and Brown had hired the tailors for some second-unit shark footage. Real sharks, real danger. Among the shots Spielberg wanted was footage of a shark circling a man in an underwater cage. To make the local great white sharks look even bigger, Richard Dreyfuss would be stunt-doubled by a four-foot-nine ex-jockey named Carl Rizzo. I'm ready. Rizzo was about to climb into a diving cage. The cage would be lowered into the murky deep from a 19-foot fiberglass auxiliary boat. It was routine. The sea was swollen with sharks. Life imitates art. A great white shark had just attacked the auxiliary boat, the one attached to the diving cage, but not just attacked it. Valerie Taylor later wrote, a huge head rose above the spray, twisting and turning, black maw gaping in a frenzy of rage and pain. Triangular teeth splintered as they tore the restricting metal. 
The brute dove, his tail whipping the air six feet above the surface. Ron Taylor pulled Rizzo back just as he stepped into the cage, but not before the shark's tail brushed his face. They watched as the cage, the winch, and the boat vanished into the sea, dragged down into a boiling, foaming swirl. One more step, one moment sooner, and Carl Rizzo would be dead. Rizzo stared calmly out over the ocean. He turned and walked into the hold of the ship. And locked himself in the toilet. Carl, buddy, you've been in there for two hours. I'm not coming out. It was the opening sequence of Jaws, the first moment we feel the awesome destructive power of a killer great white shark. Stuntwoman Susan Backlenny is naked, treading water. From below, we see a shark's eye view. I think that, uh, that footage is overexposed. Carl, what do you think? There's nothing in that footage that isn't overexposed, Stephen. From the shark's perspective, in that light, you could see uh, way too much of Susan Backlenny naked. We'll print it dark to keep the scene from being so um, uh, educational. I didn't think we were making that kind of movie, Stephen. The truth is, Spielberg didn't know what kind of movie he was making. That's because every day brought new surprises and new challenges. He had taken to calling the movie Flaws, and Bruce the Shark was the great white turd. At night, he'd pretend to sleep until he finally felt like he had. The shark was not working. The shark was never working. That meant every day when something like this. Carl, do you have the new pages? Screenwriter Carl Gottlieb was living with Spielberg on location, and it's a good thing he was. Here they are, Stephen. New pages every day. Everything changed again. Spielberg reviewed them over tea, then off to the location. Again, time to improvise. Bring out the yellow barrels. That's it for today. Carl, new pages? Right here, Stephen. The shirt is not working. Barrels. That's it for today. The shirt is not working. From episode five of Inside Jaws, and thanks to Mark Ramsey for his permission to play that to you.
And that's about all from the podcast hour for now. Just a reminder, you've been listening to The Habitat, Crazy Genius, Inside Jaws and Song Exploder. And please let me have your listening recommendations at pods at radionz.co.nz or on Twitter, we're at RNZ Podcast Hour and we'll try and feature them on future shows. For now, from me, Richard Scott, enjoy the rest of your weekend. I'll be back next week. This March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award-winning movie, Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told, about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu.